Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today on the show, we are face-to-face in studio with sports and politics legend, 1968 Olympian Dr. John Carlos. Colin Kaepernick is a gifted individual. You know, I mean, he sees something wrong as I did as a young man, and he chose to sacrifice himself to make a statement for all people. His thing is about dealing with America straight on, as I did 48 years ago, to tell them that something is wrong within the system. There's a lesson to be learned amongst my kids and their kids. Believe in what you believe in and stand for what you believe in. And don't let anyone intimidate you to try and deter you from being who you should be in life. So Mr. Kaepernick, by him being a millionaire professional athlete, he's making a statement that it's not about your independent wealth. It's about the well-being of all the people that you left in your environment to come to this wealth that you have today. Follow Kaepernick to the rainbow. I also have some choice words for Iron Mike Ditka. I have some words as well about some listener concerns about the interview we did last week with Bob Costas. We also have the Just Stand Up Award. We've got some calls to the hotline. So we got a full show. Let's hit it. Dr. John Carlos, how you doing, sir? Anytime I'm with you, Dave, is always good. (laughs) Excellent. So There's so much I can ask you right now. But first things first, what does it feel like to see people who are in some cases, not even 12 years old, let alone 20 or 30, taking the field to play sports and throwing up their fist and saying they are doing it in the tradition of what you did with Tommy Smith in 1968. They've done their homework. Past tense, I don't think we followed our history. Back in the 40s and the 30s and the 20s, there was a thing called black history that would be passed down amongst the parents and the grandparents. And then we lost that somewhere. But based on the demonstration that Dr. Smith, Peter Norman, and I took part in uh, 48 years ago, that was a part of history. They say United States history, Olympic history, but it actually was war history. And these young individuals began to look at this and dissect it in terms of what it meant, what it took to do this, what message was being sent. So it gives me the impression today that maybe I was a gardener or horticulture or someone that tilled the earth, planted the seeds, and watered the garden. And what you see in these young individuals right now is the fruit of my labor. They understood what happened at that particular time. They used the slide rule to see whether we have really progressed in this nation as a race of people. And they feel that we can go some farther and we're pushing the ball up the road to get there. There's so much crap that's being thrown at these kids. Like I said, some as young as 10, 11, 12 years old. And you're somebody who knows what it feels like to actually get death threats for engaging in a peaceful act of dissent against injustice. So what do you have to say? What words of advice do you have to people who are young, who are modeling themselves after you in so many ways and are now feeling the backlash. You know, death threats is part of the game. You know, for those that stood for what was right in society throughout the annals of time, they've always had people that preyed upon them and threats against their lives. But the issue is greater than one's life. People want change, and they want change now, and they're willing to step up to be that sacrificial lamb. Because when you think about the halls of justice, it moves slower than a snail's pace. So, you know, as I did what I did 48 years ago, it wasn't for John Carlos at that particular time, but it was for Malik Carlos and Kimmy Carlos and all my kids and their peers and and their grandkids to make it a better playing field for them. We have to take the initiative to start somewhere. 
And God seems to send us back, you know, like Harry Belafonte was there. John Carlos was there. Paul Robinson was there. There's always someone that's going to come up with a clear mind and a strong heart and a desire to make this a better society. Mm. Now, there are people who, of course, who say that protesting the anthem is somehow inherently unpatriotic. Again, as someone who's had to deal with that argument for so many decades of your life, what do you say to the people who say that? You know, unpatriotic is when I choose not to go and fight against a war. That's what they call it, unpatriotic. That's what they tried and tell Muhammad Ali he was because he decided that his religion was far greater than the war itself. And then when you sit back and you start to look at the words in the anthem and justice for all and the land of the free. You know, you sit back and think about, well, who wrote this song? And when was this anthem written? And then you begin to realize that, wow, you know, I've been pledging to something that doesn't really pledge itself to all of its people. This flag and this anthem is supposed to protect all of the nation. Mm -hmm. It's so, I think, great to get your perspective on this, especially because you spent so many years in exile. And now you've been, in a lot of respects, re-embraced by a lot of the establishment that for so long saw you on the outside looking in. What does that feel like to know that you haven't changed, but the system around you has? Well, you know, I've always felt that I was on the right track. You know, it gives me pride and, and, and faith in, in society to know that hey, they can evaluate things over time for themselves and realize whether they were wrong and take the initiative to try and say, hey, man, I ask for forgiveness with open arms. To come full circle, for me, it just goes to show that there's a lesson to be learned amongst my kids and their kids to believe in what you believe in and stand for what you believe in. And don't let anyone intimidate you to try and deter you from being who you should be in life. I believe it was a black individual that did the first heart transplant. You know, just imagine if uh, he was deterred just based on racism and bias and prejudice. Uh, we wouldn't have the surgeries we have today relative to heart disease. Mm. And I, I should, I do want to get you on the record on this, just straight up. What's your impression of Colin Kaepernick? What do you think about this young man? What do you think about the fact that he chose to take this stand against police violence? Well, I think uh, Colin Kaepernick is a gifted individual. You know, I mean, he sees something wrong as I did as a young man, and he chose to sacrifice himself to make a statement for all people. Uh, his whole thing was not about burning up the American flag. His thing is not about dodging America. His thing is about dealing with America straight on, as I did 48 years ago, to tell them that something is wrong within the system. He didn't say that all police are bad. He just said that they have certain police within your blue shield that's bad, and you need to look at yourself to try and weed this thing out. It's mm. just too many people dying, and he feels, as I feel and many other people feel, this needless death. When you see an individual die because he was selling loose cigarettes, or you see an individual kid die because he's in the park with a cap gun, well, where else is a kid supposed to be but in the park playing with a cap gun? Mm -hmm. uh, when you see a young lady to get picked up for a traffic uh, citation, next no, she's hung in, in the jail cell. You know, these are things that need to be investigated. And when you sit back and think about investigations, there have never been any prosecutions. Mm. No one pays the price for the death of these individuals. Mm. And that's where we are. You know, one of the things that I've noticed is that there are a lot of people, they tend to be older, they tend to be white, who are blasting Kaepernick's protest, and they cite Dr. King 
as a reason why Kaepernick shouldn't be doing that. They said it actually goes against the wishes of Dr. King, such a protest that Dr. King is turning in his grave because you're kneeling during the anthem. But you actually met with Dr. King in 1968. You know he supported the Olympic protests. What <laughs> what do you say to people who try to use Dr. King in such a way? You know, just like racism is trying to run the world, ignorance is just as equal. They're trying to run the world as well. Dr. King was about protests. He was about nonviolent protests. How much nonviolent can uh, Kevin Eck be than to make the statement that he's made? Now, relative to Dr. King, Dr. King was sided with my boycott in 1968. Uh, we had a small conference uh, to acknowledge that, but he died before he got a chance to go full bloom with it. But however, uh, Dr. King would have been with Golden Neck 1,000%. That's my beliefs. I just think that those people need to wake up, grow up, and look at it for what it really is. Now, you met with Dr. King in 1968, obviously before he went to Memphis for that fateful trip to support the sanitation workers. And that was, of course, when his life was taken by an assassin's bullet. What did Dr. King say to you in New York? Well, you know, the essence of the meeting was that he uh, admired what we were attempting to do by uh, staging an Olympic boycott to bring the attention of humanitarian issues that confront black people and people of color, not just in the United States, but around the world. So quite naturally, he was happy for the mere fact that we chose to challenge the system in terms of them stepping up to the plate and, and trying to make these necessary changes in society. And at the same time, he admired the fact that we were doing this thing, we were about a nonviolent way. So he supported us 1,000%, which we were very gratified to do. And I remember him distinctly telling uh, Professor Edwards that he didn't want to take the lead in it. He wanted to be his second in command because he thought that Dr. Edwards was doing a fantastic job. Wow. You know, we had this odd moment on the show last week. We were interviewing Bob Costas, and he spoke about being a teenager and seeing you and Tommy Smith and Peter Norman do your demonstration in Mexico City and being electrified and having it be this life-changing moment. And he did not like the idea of comparing that moment to Kaepernick. He said, you guys were great, but I don't feel great about what Kaepernick is doing. What do you say to people who say, I like Smith and Carlos, but I don't like these Kaepernick demonstrations as if they're two distinct and separate things? Well, they're two different people. That, that, that individual is, is running from himself. I mean, Kaepernick is just as fighting for the same cause that I fought for 48 years ago as I fought for the same cause that Harry Belafonte is fighting for 60 years ago. So when you sit back and think about an individual that makes this statement, uh, he's confused as to who he is and what his true thoughts really are. Mm, you see, and that's a message. It's contradictory. Yes. It's a, and that's a friendly message there for Bob Costas and for everybody out there. Like, if you heard it from John Carlos himself. Do not try to use one part of history of athletic protest to bash the present history. Absolutely. You hear that all the time. Like, oh, Muhammad Ali, he was brave. Colin Kaepernick, he's not brave. Well, you know, the old divide and conquer, you know, mm -hmm. that's old hat. I'm sure everyone knows about that now. Dr. Carlos, we're so glad you're here with us because this is one hell of a week for you right here in Washington, D.C. We're talking about everything that's happening in the sports world, and that in and of itself makes this a remarkable time. But you were also in D.C. this week for the opening ceremonies of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, 
where there is a statue of you and Tommy Smith and Peter Norman. First and foremost, what was it like to be at the opening ceremonies, to be a part of all the festivities, the president speaking, all the rest of it? What was that experience like? Let me first, before I even go into that, let me give a a shout out to Lonnie Bunch and to Damian Thomas, because they did a fantastic job, a, a courageous job in terms of building this museum. Now, if I was to put it in a phrase and say, what do I think in the museum? Lonnie Bunch and his crew got together and made a miracle here on Earth. That's how deep this particular museum is. I don't think they left a stone unturned. People were, are extremely emotional and excited about what they've seen in the museum. I feel that the design of the museum is taking the nation's capital to a, a new level, a new zone in terms of its structure. Let them know that it's a new day here. This is the place to understand how protest and love of country don't merely coexist, but inform each other. How men can proudly win the gold for their country, but still insist on raising a black glove fist. President Obama made reference to you and Tommy Smith in his speech outside of that museum. I mean, that's... Remarkable. I mean, did you know that was going to happen? And how, how did that feel? It was surreal. Uh, I had no idea whatsoever that it was going to happen. I thought maybe one of the other people might have mentioned it in their speeches, but they never did. And for the president to mention it, I was astounded. Uh, you know, just the fact that he acknowledged who we were, what we stood for at that time and what we stand for today. And not only that, he acknowledged what we stand for so many people that will come through to see that statement. So it was, it was profound for my wife and I to sit there and, and actually hear this come from his mouth. And you shook hands with Stevie Wonder. I saw the picture on, on the Facebooks. Well, I shook hands with the great Stevie Wonder. The great Stevie Wonder. You just can't say Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder is the great Stevie Wonder. I was uh, honored and thrilled for the first time in my life to have an opportunity to meet him. And uh, when I whispered in his ear and told him who I was, and I started to walk away, and he grabbed me and he pulled me back. He said, are you really John Carlos? And then we embraced. So it was a a thrill, I I believe, for both of us. We had respect and admiration for one another. Where is our song of love? Where is the song of love? Not a song of love between you and me, but a song of love for all humanity. Where is our love song? Our desperately needed song of love. Already, I am hearing that in this remarkable museum of African-American culture at the Smithsonian, there are two things that are getting the most people taking pictures. One is the mothership of George Clinton, and the other is the statue of you, Tommy Smith, and Peter Norman. So just first and foremost, I know you've had this experience at San Jose State, but just tell us, what is it like to see a statue of yourself? Once again... The great George Clinton. Yes. <laughs> Not just George. The great George Clinton. To see his spaceship there was remarkable. Okay? <laughs> but to see the statue there of, of, of myself, uh, it makes you reflect on your, your kids and your kids' kids and their kids on down the line. When I was a youngster, uh, my father gave all of his siblings the value of the family name, Carlos. 
And he taught us whatever we do in life, don't do anything to shame or to embarrass or tarnish the family name. So, you know, it, it brings tears to my eyes now just to talk about it, to think that our name will be in the annals of time. That statement uh, is not a statement for self, but it's a statement for society, for humanity. And for the Carlos name to be attached to that statement is remarkable. So I always smile to myself to think my grandkids would come up and say, that's your pop-pop there, or that's your great-great-grandfather there. And it gives them to the encouragement to know, do the right thing and stand behind what you do. Now, there's a big difference, though, with this statue and the remarkable statue at San Jose State. And that's that at San Jose State, Peter Norman is not up there. Peter Norman, the silver medalist from Australia, who, of course, stood with Tommy Smith and you and wore a button that said Olympic Project for Human Rights. He's not there at San Jose, but he is on the medal stand on the statue at the Smithsonian. Why is that? Well, let me tell you, Peter is a great man today when he was in here in the flesh, and he's a greater man in the spirit. He's not there at the San Jose State statue, which is a remarkable piece of artwork as well, I might add. When I got wind, the statues were being erected, and I think they called me and told me that Tommy Smith's statue was erected, and, and they was had me laid on the table putting tile on me. And I asked him, I said, well, what about Peter's statue? And he said, there's no statue of Peter. And I said, what do you mean there's no statue of Peter? And uh, I jumped in my car, and I went down to San Jose. I drove from Los Angeles to San Jose, and I went right to the Student Body Association because the students were the ones that raised the money did a campaign to raise the money to build the statues. So I asked them, I said, well, what happened? Why didn't you build a statue for Peter Norman, build a statue as well for Peter? And uh, one of them stated, well, John, you know, Peter Norman didn't go to school here. You and Tommy Smith are graduates of San Jose State, and blah, blah, blah. And I stopped him and I told him, I said, say, young man, uh, it doesn't matter what school Peter Norman went to. This is greater than the school. The message that's more important. And I said to him, I said, uh, if Mr. Norman's statue is not going up, my statue is not going up. Another guy comes in. He says, well, uh, Mr. Carlos, Peter Norman didn't want his statue put there. And then I went over to Dr. Casson, which was the president of uh, San Jose State, and told him I need to make a long-distance call. And I called Peter, and Peter picked up the phone. And I said to Peter, I said, Pete, what's this, uh, man? You backing away from us? You you turn your back on us? What's going on He he laughed. He says, this is blimey Carlos. And I said, yeah. I said, man, what's happening? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, they tell me that you said you didn't want your statue built there at San Jose State with us. He said, yeah, John. He said, listen to me. He said, I didn't do what you and Tommy did. He said, but I supported what you and Tommy did. He said, I chose to step back from having my statue there. So if anybody come from anywhere on planet Earth and come to San Jose State and felt like they support you and wanted to support you and stand with you, I felt humble enough that I would want them and allow them to stand in my spot where I stood to support you. And I thought that was larger than life for him to make that statement. I've always said I don't think Tommy would have ever done that. And, you know, it was just incredible what I saw him do. But when the statue came about in the museum and I talked to Mr. Bunch and I told Mr. Bunch, I said, you know, it's great that you guys are putting the statue up with Tommy and I, but it's imperative that you put Peter Norman up there as well. I said, because your job is to educate the masses through this museum. 
I said, it would never be true history if Peter Norman is not there. And then I had to remind him also that we don't want it to be a situation like John Brown. John Brown should have statues in and around the United States as well. We don't want him to be forgotten as well as we don't want Peter Norman to be forgotten for his contributions to have an equal playing field for all races, particularly the black race. Mm. It's about making sure that example exists for for white people to say, a- absolutely. you can fight races. Absolutely. Just like that young lady that took a knee from the soccer. Yeah, Megan Rapino. Absolutely. Wow. Now, you've never ceased fighting for change when you were outcast from the Olympic movement, when you were ignored for so many years, when you were working as a counselor in the public school system in Southern California. You never stopped fighting. Is there a fear that when they make a statue out of you, that it's a way to sort of like make you safe, to extract your political teeth? No, not really, because that symbol is so revealing and so strong. For years after I'm dead and gone, that symbol will still inspire and motivate individuals to seek out higher ground and to push the stone up the road to make it a better society for all people. Now, that's a eternal job. It's not a job, you say, in 10 months or 10 years or 25 years, the job will be done. It's an eternal job. You're going to do this job as long as the bubble spin. Mm-hmm. But it has to be people such as me, uh, the statue that they have, of Dr. King in, in the uh, Washington Mall, a statue of Rosa Parks, or a statue of H. Rap Brown, or anyone that fought in the fields to try and bring equality and justice. We didn't say that we want to be above anyone. All we just says we want to be equal to anyone. We should have that opportunity to come up to their shoulder length. Mm. Now, I mentioned before, this is a huge week for you. Uh, We talked about uh, the museum, the opening of the museum, the unveiling of the statue. We talked about the spread of your protest of 68 onto the athletic fields of 2016. But you're also going to the White House this week. What, What is that about? That's incredible uh, to to think that I'm going to the White House. And once again, I can say 48 years later from my involvement in the Olympics itself, I would hope that my teammates from the 1968 team one day will have their day at the White House as well. But at this particular time, Tommy Smith and I will be going to the White House as a part of the 216 Olympic team that did so well. And I'll take my hat off to all of the team, the women of the team in particular, for track and field because the women came through big time. Big time. So we have to respect and honor their their good deeds. But relative to going to the White House, man, it's a very emotional thing for me uh, in the sense that, you know, my father was in the First World War, gave up blood, had relatives in the Second World War, in the Korean War. And none of them, I don't think, ever got close enough to a president of the nation that they stood for. For me to go, for my wife to be there at my side, I don't think it gets any greater than that. To be able to shake the president's hand, particularly a historical president, relative to being the first black noted president of the United States, that would be something that would linger throughout my lineage for the duration. And I, I saw when uh, the press release went out on social media, you responded by saying, it's about time. Well, it, it, it is about time. And it's past sense, time. Well, you know, it's, it's about time in the sense that when Barack went into office, I remember that Tommy Smith, 
uh, his wife, my wife, we were all in a hotel in Boston. We was going to a fair. Matter of fact, you might have been at that affair as well, David. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were in the hotel, and we gave a family hug. The, the four of us gave this family hug in celebration of Barack being sworn in as the first black president of the United States. And then, you know, I felt also that I was maybe a stepping stool, that he stepped on my back to get where he was. And, you know, I look forward to meeting him far earlier than I'm meeting him at this particular time. However, when the dust settles, the bottom line is that I'm meeting him. So it's all in God's time. When God says time, nobody can step in the way. So I'm just ecstatic and can't wait. I just hope that my heart is still beating that day that I can get through the gate. (laughs) And this is also tied to an apology that's being put forward by the United States Olympic Committee for how they treated you and Dr. Smith. Is that correct? No, I I don't know whether they attempted an apology as much as I think what they did. I think they lowered the drawbridge mm-hmm. and they were willing to come across the drawbridge to greet us with open arms. They made it clear to me that they had a charter and they have rules and regulations that was instilled in the Olympic process, I guess, at the beginning. And they feel that I crossed the line with my statement. However, they expressed that we feel that what you did was the right movement, the right trend of mind or thought to say that you stand for equality and justice for all people. They admired the strength that we had to endure the pain and sacrifice that we had by making that statement. They acknowledged the fact that we haven't wavered from what our beliefs were at that particular time. And they reiterated that We agree with your statement. We just disagree with the podium for doing it. I can accept that. The method, Right. I can accept that. But relative to an apology where people always ask, well, would you be happy with the apology from the Olympic Committee? I don't really feel that the Olympic Committee owes me an apology. But an apology is owed by an individual American by the name of Mr. Brent Musburger. Brent Musburger owes you an apology. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm offended by the statements that Brent Musburger made. And I think every American, true American, should be offended by the statement that he made in reference to Dr. Smith and myself. You're talking about in 1968, as a young reporter for the Chicago American, Brent Musburger described you and Tommy Smith as, quote unquote, black skin stormtroopers. Absolutely. So what he's calling me is a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. So I guess based on, you know, what we were fighting for at that particular time, if America accepted his statement towards us to call us neo-Nazis or fascists or whatever you want to call it, then America is just acknowledged that maybe Kaepernick is right. Maybe John Collins is right. Or all those civil activists down the line have been right when a, a white individual can call a national figure in the Olympic Games a black-skinned stormtrooper, and American society let it go, that's racism in itself. So if anyone owes an apology, it's Brent Musburger. And just to think about the fact that he made millions of dollars on the backs of so many young blacks that's out there playing football every Saturday, and I would say 99.9% of them have no idea that he called us black stormtroopers. Especially I wonder if some of the players like this last weekend at the University of Michigan who raised their fists, is Brent Musburger looking at them 
and thinking that they're black-skinned stormtroopers? I mean, it's stunning to me that he hasn't cleared the air on this. It wouldn't take a lot for him to just say, I was young, I was stupid, I'm sorry. No, you can't change the air if that's the way you feel. And that's, that's what he felt then. It appears that's what he feels now. Uh, we chose not to say anything about Mr. Musburger relative to that until the appropriate time. It's more than appropriate time to speak on his behavior at that time. Mm. Wow. Very well said. We just recently had the passing of an absolute track and field legend, uh, Mr. Ed Temple. He coached Myomi Atias and Wilma Rudolph. I mean, one of the great women's track coaches to ever walk the earth, remained a mentor to dozens of world-class athletes. And it's hard to imagine uh, women's track and field without the existence of Ed Temple. Just wonder if you had any thoughts about the passing of Ed Temple. Well, you know, it's a great loss to track and field. You know, when you sit back, you think they talk about, you know, Arnold Palmer being a loss to golf. Well, Ed Temple is the same status of loss for track and field, for the world of track and field, and even greater for the world of the Olympic movement. Mm. Uh, Ed Temple produced probably more gold medals than many countries produced at one time as a coach. If I was to look at the greatness in any coach— I would have to say that Ed Temple would be leading the list in terms of coaches, male or female coaches. But he never got the recognition that he deserved while he was alive. He produced Wilma Rudolph, of course. He produced Wyoming Atias, of course. He produced Ralph Boston, of course. He produced uh, Edith McGuire. Uh, you know, he produced eons. Uh, the, the young lady that's there now coaching uh, Cheeseboro, he produced a— She's a gold medal winner in the 400 meters. Uh, He produced Martha Watson. Uh, I believe she got second or third in 68 Mm -hmm. in the long jump. Uh, Willie White. Uh, He's just eons of of talent that he produced for this nation. And doing it at a time where the quality of equipment at a historically black college, the quality of the tracks, the quality of the footwear— was, was was not great. Well, you know, you you mentioned the material things, but think about the quality of the competition. Mm. Most of those individuals had to run against themselves because they didn't have women's uh, sports at that particular time mm-hmm. to a point where they had uh, extensive competition across the country. Stunning. No, it's a beautiful tribute uh, to Ed Temple. And I agree with, I'm glad you mentioned Arnold Palmer because as you see all of this news about Arnold Palmer, uh, and I'm not seeing a lot of news about Ed Temple, but when you think about... Um, number of people impacted, directly impacted in the world of sports, particularly in the world of women's sports. I mean, you would put Ed Temple up next to anybody. Oh, Ed Temple, like I stated earlier, Ed Temple is the number one uh, track coach in, in historical perspectives yeah. based on his deed, what he's done. Uh, you know, but once again, it's merely because he's a black individual. The media never chose to focus on him in terms of what he's done to bring the gold home for America. Mm. Dr. John, as somebody who has uh, lived through these last years, there's a question right now that exists as part of the Black Lives Matter movement against police violence. And the question is, is police violence actually getting worse in this country or are we only more aware of it because of social media, because of people being able to capture these moments on their phones? Uh, Looking at your life, your history, the history of your loved ones. Do you think police violence is actually getting worse now, or do you think it's just a question of awareness? Well, I think it's getting I think it's getting worse in the sense that you know we didn't have social media when I was a kid, uh, but what we did have we had community policing, and when I say community policing, I'm talking about we had police that will beat police. They walked the streets 
they knew the people in the community. The people in the community knew them. Some of them used to go to the people's house to have lunch or dinner. You understand? They knew the kids in the community. You know, if a kid did something, he was going the wrong way. They wouldn't take and throw him in the ground face down. They wouldn't shackle him and drag him out or shoot him or beat him up. They might take him home and let his parents deal with him mm-hmm. and make him realize what you're doing is wrong. We no longer have a beat police. So, you know, we have a cop. It used to be years ago, two riding in the car. Now it's one riding in the car. They circle a whole area like they're herding cattle to keep them in their stable, so to speak. So there's no relationship with them. If you look at something that's supposed to be less than you that you have to control, whether it be sheep or cattle and one get out, or what does a sheep do when they get out and you keep getting out? They take the prod and they put the prod on them and give them some shock treatment. Let them know you come through this gate, you're going to get lit up again. And that's the attitude that they have amongst certain police within these various agencies across the nation. I'm watching the cattle. If I have to take down one of the cattle because he stepped out of line, I'll do it. We have to make sure that the police department be responsible for their policing. We're not saying that the police universal is a bad situation. We're saying that you have bad elements within your agency, and it's your responsibility, your job. You take the oath to protect the public. If you're not protecting the public because your own people are committing atrocities, then you have to take an inward look for yourself to Mm -hmm. deal with these atrocities that's happening from your agency. As simple as that. You know, that's all that young man is doing right now by taking a knee. As I say, man, America has to take a better look at itself. If you remember back in 1968 when I was on the podium, I had a black shirt on that covered up my USA jersey. You know, I didn't cover up my jersey because I was mad at the United States. I covered up my jersey because I was ashamed of the United States. It's a difference in being mad at someone and being ashamed of someone. And I was ashamed because all the projection that America has put out to the world, it was a falsity relative to what I was saying, and I felt that America could have done and should have done better. That's all these people were saying today. America, you can and you should do better. Mm. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one question about the presidential elections, because I, I, I respect your political opinion so much. I'm not asking you about if you're a Hillary person or any of that kind of stuff. Just straight up, though, as a person who's lived through what you've lived through— and who's taken the journey that you have taken, what do you hear when you hear that Donald Trump phrase, make America great again? Well, when I hear make America great again, I have to reflect on, you know, when does uh, America acknowledge itself as being great? When they had slaves and bonded and and shackled and chained down, was that when America was great? Was it right after Reconstruction? Was that when America was great? Uh, I want to know when was America great where people had an even playing field. It looked like America was great when black people was in bondage or in debt so high up to their knees or second-class citizens that couldn't find equal housing or equal education or equal medical care. You know, is that when America was great? I need to find out specifically when was America great from his mind. To throw it out there, America is great. I'm sure there's two sides of the street on that. Mm-hmm. And that has me worried about this election in terms of how many people might be in disguise in the public sense, say, oh, he's terrible. But when they get behind it during the private sense or when they draw the curtain behind the election poll as to whether they're going to melt down and think about when America was really great again. Mm. Okay? So I'm just saying that 
all of those individuals that's out there that want to sit on their fannies and think that this election is like any other election, you're mistaken. Get up, register to vote, get out and vote. You know what I've noticed, though? We spoke before this uh, interview, and while a lot of folks I know are, you know, they're absolutely freaked out about the thought of Trump winning, you were actually kind of chill about the future and about where change comes from and about how much a president really does or doesn't do. And I was hoping maybe you could speak a little about that. Well, you know, when you sit back and you think about a presidency, you have to remember about the riptide. Now, people have an opportunity to galvanize society right now in terms of their thought process on who would be the better person for this job. You know, you might be in a situation where you walk into a room and you say, there's two snakes in the room. Yeah, I'm going to get bit by one of them, but I got to study these snakes and find out which one has most venom in it. Uh, and that's the situation I feel that we're in right now in society, you know, relative with the two candidates. Both of them have very shady records, but I think one's record might be a far more shady than the other. Mm. And <laughs> do, do you want to share with us who that is? Who do you think is saying? No, man, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you determine that on your own. You know, you can read between the lines as most people try and do. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. John Carlos, thank you so much for your time. I'm honored to be here. I would hope you guys invite me back once again. And let me say this, too. Uh, I'm putting this out here so just so folks know. Uh, I, I had the great privilege to write with John, his memoir, The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World. And for me personally, whether it was you and I speaking together um, in the South Bronx in front of 30 people, you and I speaking in London in front of over a thousand people, or getting that picture of Nelson Mandela in his last day sitting there reading that book, that book has given so much to me and you have given so much to me. So I just want to say thank you. Oh, David, we in the blood together, brother. You know, we we in the spirit of things, man. It ain't about no color. It's about right versus wrong. And and that's what I love about you, man, is that you're real. And yeah. if we can turn more people in to find out who they themselves are, who they are to be real, we can have a far better society. My suggestion is get in touch with the man or the woman in the mirror. Don't worry about their business. Focus on your business. Thank you so much to Dr. John Carlos. Uh, once again, if you want to know more about John Carlos, you got to go to his website. JohnCarlos68.com Okay, so now I've got some choice words, and these choice words are for former Chicago Bears football coach Mike Ditka. Look, Mike Ditka has not been in charge of an NFL team for 25 years, but the business of being Iron Mike has never stopped booming. He's the tough-as-nails head football coach who's always ready to shill for any product with an arm's distance or play himself in a Will Ferrell movie. When on ESPN, he is forever armed with a sharp rant and is perhaps their only talent, other than maybe Chris Berman, who can pass gas on live television and make it come off as lovable. That's just Ditka being Ditka. But there's another Mike Ditka who's always been there at the margins. This is the guy who was accused as a coach of sending players back into games with concussions. He's the guy who was described this way by former Bears safety Dave Dorson. Mike was not one who gave a damn about the players or their injuries when he was coaching, end quote. Dorson later took his own life and in death was diagnosed with the brain disease CTE. 
Ditka is also the guy who berated his own Bears players for not crossing a picket line when the NFL Players Association was on strike in 1987. He's the guy today who, after a lifetime of supporting right-wing candidates, shills for another dubious product, Donald Trump. Now Mike Ditka on brand is commenting about Colin Kaepernick's anthem protests. On Friday, he said the following on the Shan and RJ radio show. I think it's a problem anybody who disrespects this country and the flag. If they don't like the country, they don't like our flag, get the hell out. That's what I think. So if you're asking me, I, I have no respect for Colin Kaepernick. He probably has no respect for me. That's his choice. My choice is that I like this country. I respect our flag. And I don't see all the atrocities going on in this country that people say are going on. I see opportunities that people want to look for opportunities. Now, if they don't want to look for them, then you can find problems with anything. But this is the land of opportunity because you can be anything you want to be if you work. Now, if you don't work, there's a different problem. Look, Mike Ditka, as mentioned, is a Trump endorser, and he is parroting Donald Trump, who said the same thing in August, that Kaepernick should, quote, maybe find another country to live in, end quote. Trump undoubtedly knows that this kind of statement is a racist dog whistle, that when you tell someone who is descended from the enslaved people that built the United States to shut up or find another country, you are telling them in classic KKK fashion to go back to Africa. This is as true today as it was when a member of Congress said it to singer and civil rights icon Paul Robeson, and Robeson's response is still the correct one. He said, I'm not going to find another country because my father was a slave and my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you. And no fascist minded people will drive me from it. End quote. Look, whether Ditka is aware that find another country is racism is unclear. But there is absolutely nothing in his history that would allow for him to get the benefit of the doubt. Another aspect of Ditka's comments that rankle are the similarities in content and tone, not only with Trump, but with another elderly ex-coach who likes playing the tough guy on television, disgraced former Indiana University basketball coach Bob Knight. These braying bullies have appointed themselves as the arbiters over who is and who is not patriotic, yet when Trump, Ditka, and Knight had the chance to serve in Vietnam, they didn't. They used whatever means at their disposal, deferments, foot injuries, coaching army basketball, to get out of it. Their lives mattered. Look, I have no problem with anyone who didn't serve in that horrific war. My great hero is Muhammad Ali who resisted the draft in Vietnam. But these guys act like they're George Patton when they're not even George W. Bush. Lastly, it is galling that in Ditka's mind, Trump's trashing of this country is somehow patriotic, yet Kaepernick's critiques justify his exile. It is galling that Ditka is blissfully unaware that he has legions of former black players who feel like he did not respect their health, their minds, or their humanity, and now his critique of Kaepernick feels like another chapter in a life of degrading black people who do more than just say, yes, coach. There's been a call for Mike Ditka to be fired from ESPN for his comments, and I do not think he should be fired, partially because there is no more nauseating thought than First Amendment martyr Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka shouldn't be fired, but I do think he should be debated. He should have to spew his views not in the Confederate confines of talk radio, but to the face of ESPN colleagues like Herman Edwards or Charles Woodson or Bamani Jones or Jamel Hill. Make him say that to the face of someone who has had to live while being black in this country, someone unafraid to push back. 
I suspect that Ditko would respond to this the way bullies always respond when challenged. When bigoted bullies are armed only with their rancid ideas, they never stand their ground. Powerful. There we go. And now the reaction to our hour plus long interview with Bob Costas has been overwhelmingly positive. But a few loyal listeners were frustrated by it, and I want to address their frustrations. The belief among a small number of listeners was that Bob Costas said several things that really upset them. He called Colin Kaepernick a quote-unquote a kid. And then also, after speaking out on the importance of nuance for 20 solid minutes to start the interview, Costas did not give Colin Kaepernick that same respect of actually looking at the nuance of what he is arguing instead of reducing him to his socks or a Fidel Castro shirt. The complaint was, I guess, that I didn't go off on Costas and crush him the way I just went off and crushed Mike Ditka. And to answer that, I just want to say a couple of things. One, I have a lot of respect for my listeners. You know where I stand. Colin Kaepernick, ride or die. That's where I stand. And I'm hoping that when Bob Costas said things that are objectionable, that you were able to hear that for yourselves without having me come down like the judge on every last word he said that maybe I don't agree with. And two, I don't want to sit here when I interview people like I'm the late John McLaughlin and just say, wrong, every time I disagree. The goal is to give people the space to speak for themselves on this show so we can draw our own conclusions. For example, if Mike Ditka was on this show right now, I wouldn't say to him, you're a racist, now get on out of my show. I wouldn't invite him on to kick him off. I'd ask him the question, can you see why people would think your statement is racist? Why does Trump get to criticize this country, but Kaepernick doesn't? Doesn't it affect you that black players you coach don't think you respect them as human beings and that the critique of Kaepernick feels like another chapter of that? In other words, I would try to get him to speak for himself so people could then judge the politics of what he says, which is exactly what I tried to do with Bob Costas. Are there things I wish I'd asked? Of course, but that's true of every interview I've ever done. And I just want to say that I hear the folks who wanted me to have a tougher hand with him. I may not agree with you, but I hear it. And every criticism, whether I agree with it or not, makes me better at my job. So thank you. I don't know, know, man. It sounded like you was kissing Bob's ass to me. (laughs) (laughs) I was not kissing his ass. It sounded like you was kissing Bob's ass. Say, Bob, well, we're going to let you get away with this one, Bob. I didn't. No, uh, no, no. So I don't know. It kind of watered down. It seemed like it was watered. You should have been on Bob's ass a little harder. I think I should have been Bob's yeah, ass right. a little harder. Say, Bob, you sound a little contradictory as shit. You know, you well, I, talking out of both sides of your mouth, Bob. I did a little pushing back. I did some I don't back. know. I don't know. And now the Just Stand Up Award. This week, every week over the last couple of months, it's impossible to choose somebody from the sports world who is standing up because there's so many people in the sports world who are standing up. But I was particularly struck this week by the Castlemont Knights. That's a high school team in Oakland. And before their game, they had a little visitor. And that visitor's name is Colin Kaepernick. And I know situations like situations a lot of y'all might be in where People don't treat you the same. They don't give you that time of day. They don't give you those opportunities to be the best you can be. And that's why I made this decision to do what I did. And y'all inspired me with what you did, following that and standing up. Y'all are doing this at a much younger age than what I did. This took me a while to get to this point. And y'all are conscious of this at this point in time. 
to make that stand. What's most important is you look out for one another. This is your family. These are your brothers. I look at all of you as brothers. I see your strength. I see your power. I see your courage, your confidence. And that's something that you have to be able to speak into each other as well. When you talk to him, talk to him with confidence. Speak confidence into him. You're going to play great today. You're going to be the best player out there. And not just the best player on the field, you're going to be the best player when you walk off that field and into the real world. You are important. You make a difference. This matters. Everything you do matters. Look out for one another. Lift each other up. That's what this is about. I had to come support y'all because the same way y'all took a stand and stood with me, I had to come out here and stand with y'all. So I appreciate what y'all did. I love y'all. Y'all my brothers. I'm here with you. And then during the anthem, Colin Kaepernick took a knee and every single one of the Castlemont Knights, including the coaches, they lay straight on their backs and put their hands in the air. So a big shout out to the Castlemont Knights. Thank you for the example that you've shown. And as much as Colin Kaepernick's demonstration has been electric throughout the country, the Castlemont Knights are electric as well. terms of him having money, standing for people that don't have money. It's not about the money that he has. It's about the overall principle of what's happening in society, the atrocities that's taking place. So for a guy like Shaquille O'Neal to come out and talk about he's wrong, well, these guys are wrapped in the capitalistic patriotism. Uh, they are blinded by that to the point where they're ignorant about the real fact about we're dealing with real issues out here. People's lives are we concerned about. It's not about the dollars that he have or the dollars that he don't have. So Mr. Kaepernick, by him being a millionaire professional athlete he's making a statement and a plea to you professional athletes out there that it's not about your independent wealth it's about the well-being of all the people that you left in your environment to come to this wealth that you have today follow Kaepernick to the rainbow Every week we get calls to the Edge of Sports Hotline and we pick out the choicest ones to share with you and when necessary, I respond. Let's hear a couple of calls. The number, and people can call anytime to say anything they want about the show, is 401-426-EDGE. That's 401-426-3343. This is Pranav Johnny. I think the connection between Ali, and I want to include Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Kaepernick is not only their courage and their bravery, but their clear questioning of how black people can be expected to think of themselves as equally American as everyone else or respect the flag when there's so much racial inequality. So I think that's a clear political connection and they're all very articulate in making that connection through their gestures and their words. Thanks for the excellent program. Bye-bye. Uh, thank you so much for that call. The only thing I would say to that is a quote I use a great deal that Mark Twain said, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so, of course, Colin Kaepernick uh, in so many ways is different from Muhammad Ali or Tommy Smith or John Carlos. But I think what they share is actually more important than what's different about them. And that's using the platform to reach people who otherwise wouldn't be reached about a very important question facing our country. And it's the question that's always faced our country. And that's the gap between the 
ideals of what the flag is supposed to stand for and then the reality of particularly people of color's lived experiences. Hi, this is Mohsen Mirza. There will never be another Muhammad Ali. No one with that level of skill, grace, charisma, and political intelligence in the way that Ali was able to stand up to the war. But Kaepernick is definitely the Ali of our time. And as someone who is obsessed with Ali, who reads a lot about him, I see a lot of similarities. I see similarities in the vitriol that's being directed at Kaepernick and in the way that Kaepernick is inspiring other athletes. If you'll remember John Carlos Tommy Smith and the 68th Olympic boycott, a lot of those athletes were inspired by the stand that Ali took. And as you see more athletes at the high school level, at the NFL, following Kaepernick's lead, possibly soon in other professional sports like the NBA, I can't help but think that Kaepernick is carrying that banner into our new movement and our new age. Wow. Seems crazy with John Carlos in the room not to ask him. Muhammad Ali, how inspirational was he to you going into 1968? Well, I think Ali and I were running parallel. You know, Ali's a few years older than me. I remember him as a youngster when he first broke on the scene boxing. But in terms of his political views and him in terms of him being a young individual realizing that he was a gifted athlete, I think he's grown into a political aspect in terms of uh, having social views or be able to digest society socially. Mm. Uh, You know, I think that I had my own uh, boat. Holly had his own boat, but I think we had the same ingredients to make the boat float. Mm. Peace, Dave. Dan, Edge of Sports family. This is Lee at Hip Hop Alumni. I think there's an absolute connection between Kaepernick and Ali. You know, when I think back to what I'm learning about the Ali Summit, and I think there's a, a very specific word we got to think about here is solidarity. So I'm I'm real excited about what I'm seeing with the NFL and with what Kaepernick got going on when it comes to solidarity between the uh, players and the athletes. And I think also listening to the Bob Costas interview and this request to get some clarity on the situation, I think also shows how much of a teachable moment we got here. So much respect to the show. Definitely enjoy it. And I'm also checking out The Collision, too. So much respect, y'all. Peace. Yeah, The Collision, for folks who don't know, is a show I do on uh, DC Radio, WPFW, with uh, John Carlos's good buddy, Atan Thomas. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for that call, Lee. Uh, there's one thing I would say to that is I'm glad you mentioned that part of the Costas interview where Costas said that he didn't see clarity in what Kaepernick's doing. And I said this to Costas, and I'll say it now. I think Colin Kaepernick has been perfectly clear. I think this does not connect the way it does with people across the country if it wasn't so incredibly clear. Colin Kaepernick has the gift of clarity, and the clarity is very simple. It's that the system of policing is broken in this country. He's not upset about individual cases as much as he's upset about the fact that when these cases go down, there's no semblance of justice for anybody because our system of policing is broken. It's like this amazing sign that I saw on Twitter over the weekend that I retweeted uh, that's gotten like retweeted by like 10,000 people. It's an amazing sign. It's this woman holding a sign. It says it very simply that we've developed a system of policing where we expect people to be calm when there's a gun in their face and we accept that officers are not going to be calm when confronted with, with unarmed people. And that, that, that's exactly backwards of what it should be. Well, first of all, many, they have this sign on the, on the side of each police car says, we protect the people. 
And then you sit back and you see what's happening in the streets and you have to ask yourself, and I don't care which side of the fence you are, the Stein states we protect the public, but in turn you see them killing the public. That's contrary to what that sign states. So Mr. Kovanek and, and anyone else or a clear conscience has a right to step up and say what's happening is wrong. And mm. anyone trying to denounce him for saying it, they're wrong. And mm. they need to grow up and check themselves. Mm. You know, my old man told me something when I was a kid. He said, you know, if you can't stand by something right, then you should keep your mouth shut if you don't have anything good to say. Mm. Well, ex except if it's Brent Musburger. Well, <laughs> you know, Brent Musburger, he's going to have his day in, in the public court soon enough. Uh, you know, without a doubt, you know, as long as I have breath, I will be expounding upon his actions of 48 years ago to make him feel somewhat of what Mr. Norman felt, what Mr. Smith felt, and what Mr. Carlos felt based on his rhetoric that he put out to the public at that time. Mm. The phone number is 401-426-EDGE. That's 401-426-3343. The question for next week. The question for next week is when can we get Brent Musburger on the show to explain himself? That's the question for next week. How many of you out there in the general public would really like to have Mr. Brent Musburger come in and express the where, why's, and what about black skin stormtroopers? Call 401-426-EDGE. That's 401-426-3343. If you have thoughts about Brent Musburger coming on the show, or if you have any thoughts about this interview you just heard with John Carlos, call it in. 401-426-EDGE. 401-426-3343. That's all we got for this week on Edge of Sports. Thank you to Dr. John Carlos. Thank you to our production associate, David Tigaboo. Thank you to our producer, Dangerous Dan Bloom. If you want to talk to me, Dave Zirin, you can always reach me at edgesports at slate.com or on Twitter at Edge of Sports. And don't forget to look for John Carlos68.com. God bless. And also remember the John Carlos story shared with the great David Zirin. I do love that book, The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World. For everybody out there, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.